A Jewish Childhood in Germany. I was born into a Jewish family in Germany in 1922, the old city of Bochum, Westphalia, some 40 kilometers east of the Rhine River, was and is one of the industrial centers of the Ruhr Valley. Then, as now, this area along the Ruhr River had the biggest steel mills in Germany. Steelworks ranged along roadsides in Bochum, near the coal mines that fed the Coke ovens. A mere 10 kilometers from us loomed Essen, one of the major industrial cities of Europe, with the enormous iron and steel making plants founded by the Krupp family in the early 19th century. My father, Hermann Schnitzer, had immigrated to Germany in 1908 from Galicia, in what was to become Poland. At that time, it was part of the Austro Hungarian Empire. Europe was a very different place then in many ways. My father, was only about 14 years old, just past his bar mitzvah, when he left home on his own. In Germany, he started out buying and selling produce from farms. Like many Jewish migrants in different corners of the world throughout history, he began as a traveling peddler. At the age of 16, when he knew the ropes and had the contacts, he decided to become an egg wholesaler. Even back then, a license was required to sell almost anything in Germany. When my father applied to the bureau and was asked his age, he was told he was too young to be granted a license. But somehow, he acquired this and launched a wholesale business. He was successful from the start. He had exceptional business ability. His father had moved to Germany before him, but was never successful there. Maybe he just couldn't adjust to the conditions or to the language as an older man. Life was very different in his native Galicia, where he had spoken Yiddish. My father adapted readily and did well. His two older brothers, Beryl and Josef, followed him to Germany. Then he brought his sisters, Rosa and Augusta, Gusta, there. Finally, in 1922, after I was born, he brought over his younger brother, Michel. But my father's mother never left Poland. During World War I, my father enlisted in the army. Austria and Germany were allies, and as an Austrian citizen, my father served with German troops in the infantry corps. He fought in several battles on the Eastern Front and was decorated with the Iron Cross. He was taken prisoner in Russia and forced to work in the forests. He was soon in charge of a timber yard. Even as a prisoner of war, my father used his talent for management. After the war, he settled back in Germany, land of opportunity. Then, in 1921, he made a trip to the place of his birth, a Polish town called Rozhniatów, now Rozhniatyv in Ukraine, in the Carpathian foothills near Stanislavów, now Ivano-Frankivsk, not far from Chelnowitz, now Chelnivtsi. He married my mother there and whisked her off to Germany, where she too would flourish in a more challenging and rewarding world. My mother's family name was Heller, Belta was what my father called her, although her given name was Rosa, and her Hebrew name was Miriam. She was the only child of Shoshi and Moisha Heller. Moisha was a well-to-do man who had died in 1908. He had been supervising the construction of a building when a wall collapsed on him, crushing his kidneys. Although he had gone for treatment to a hospital in Vienna, the leading medical center of the world at that time, even the most able doctors couldn't save him. He was buried in the Wiener Zentralfriedhof, the Vienna Central Cemetery. In 1932, my mother journeyed to Vienna to oversee the headstone being placed on his gravesite. 
After his death, my grandmother managed their hardware store in Rozhniatuv. It was the only establishment of its kind in that sprawling countryside, and it prospered. When my parents were married, my grandmother went with them to Germany, and the store closed. In 1922, when I was born, my father owned a chain of retail shops in the Ruhr district. Three of these shops were in Wattenscheid, an industrial town with a population of about 60,000 and situated about six kilometers from Bochum. My parents moved us there when I was six weeks old. Our furniture store in Wattenscheid was located on Ostrasse, the high street in the upper town. Our shoe store and general clothing store, which sold every conceivable type of clothing, were in the main business district downtown, at opposite ends of Oststrasse. We lived in one of the two large apartments over the clothing store. Many of our neighbors also lived above their shops. Both my parents worked in the clothing store in Wattenscheid. My mother had grown up in a retail business and was an expert salesperson. Often when I was in the store, a customer would come in to buy a single item, such as a pair of pants, and she would sell him a three-piece suit, a shirt and tie, and a hat. He would spend more than he had intended, but he would leave the store satisfied. Our family also included my two younger brothers, Edmund, Eddie, born in 1923, and Benno, born in 1925. We were all raised by our maternal grandmother, Baba Shoshi, who took charge of us children in the housekeeping, assisted by a young live-in maid. Baba Shoshi was descended from a line of rabbinical scholars, and her chief concern was our Jewish education. She was very religious. She prayed many times each day, and I copied her. From the age of three, I could recite or read Hebrew prayers fluently. I became well advanced in reciting the liturgy. There were only about a hundred Jews, 25 to 30 families, living in Wattenscheid. The Wassermans were our closest Jewish friends. They lived three or four blocks from us. The Spiegels lived a 10-minute walk away. There was no ghetto and no segregation of Jews. Our immediate neighbors were all non-Jews. The pharmacy across from our house belonged to the pharmacist Schulte, a wealthy and nationalistic German who lived there with his family. He had several sons, all of whom were older than me. I grew up with them. Their mother was a haughty woman whose family owned much of the land in Wattenscheid. Coal mining was the main industry in Wattenscheid. Every day I watched miners head to work with lamps on their helmets. From our home, we could see them descend into the pits. Most of our customers in our clothing store were miners, and so I got to know many of them and learned about the hazards they faced. They put in long hours of dirty, back-breaking work in narrow, damp, dark, suffocating passageways. Their lives were always in danger. Some of the region's miners were Polish in origin and had Polish names. Even the immigrants from Poland had been in Germany for some time. Few of them spoke Polish. I went to school with the children of miners, steelworkers, business owners, and professionals. This part of Germany was prosperous. It was industrialized, dynamic, and people earned relatively high wages. I'm sure that my father had chosen to live there because the area favored enterprise and hard work. I did get to see where my parents were from in Poland when I was young. In 1927, the whole family, including Baba Shoshi, traveled first class by train to Rozhniatów and spent two months in Poland. I was five, Eddie was four, and Benno was just a two-year-old toddler. Baba Shoshi's house there, which was also my grandparents' old store, 
was a beautiful stone building several stories high with a large hardware store on the ground floor. It was a strange place. Goods were still on the shelves, even though the store had been closed since my parents' wedding. During our stay, my father rented a horse-drawn carriage and hired a driver. We drove from village to village through the rolling rural landscape past well-kept farms and forests with lots of creatures in the wild. There were very few bridges, so the horses had to plunge into the shallow water of rivers and streams to cross them. We were thrilled by this each time. We had never experienced anything like it in Germany. Wherever we went, my father was received like royalty. Maybe the treatment was due to small-town hospitality and the predictable welcome for a prodigal son. But my father also made bountiful donations to every local synagogue and institution. And to his credit, and his misfortune, he was never one to be tight with money. His ties to the area were strong, since his mother was still living there with his sister Dina, whose husband had decamped to Brazil by himself in 1922. My father was the sole support of his mother for many years, and of Dina and her three children until 1935. Then, my aunt Dina and her three cousins also immigrated to Brazil. My father's mother was one of his prime concerns, and he sent money to her every month, no matter the circumstances. His brothers and sisters apparently never helped to support her. My parents had heated arguments over this. I suppose my father was an idealist and a dreamer, but his idealism made a deep impression on me, and it stayed alive in me even when it became tempered with the most bitter doses of reality. He was active in the Socialist Party in Germany and had many friends who were involved in politics. He was also a dedicated Zionist. Whenever world Zionist leaders visited our region, Father met them personally and helped organize their rallies. Not only was he generous in contributing time, energy, and money toward Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, but he also hoped to settle there. He often spoke of wanting us to grow up as Jews in Eretz Israel. My father was ready to move to what was then Palestine in 1928. My brothers and I were all preschoolers, and my father was 34 years old. At that stage in his life, with a firm financial base, he felt able to pull up roots and branch out in new directions. But my mother balked at moving to Palestine. She was very fond of Germany. She enjoyed German cultural life and wanted her children to have the benefits of German culture and education. She refused to uproot herself and us for a barren, underdeveloped place. And so we stayed. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I began to attend school in 1928 when I was six years old. I had tried to go to school once before to the only local preschool which was run by Catholics. I had had a nice morning there, but when my grandmother picked me up, she asked what I had learned. I told her we had been singing songs about Jesus, and she decided I wouldn't be going back there and continued to teach me herself at home. But now that I was old enough to go to school, there was more choice. Most schools in our region belong to one of three systems, Catholic, Protestant, or free schools. In the Ruhr Valley, socialists were politically powerful and ran their own schools, free of religious instruction. The Freie Schule in Wattenscheid was called the Lessing Schule, in honor of the great and tolerant 18th century German writer Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. I was a pupil at the Lessing Schule and the only Jewish boy in the class. The school was in the upper town near the Catholic school. 
I endured my first ordeals, passing by the Catholic school to get to my school and to return home. On my way home from school, each and every day, three or four Catholic boys would be waiting for me. They would jeer at me. Jude itzig, nase spitzig. This well-known rhyme among Germans meant Izzy, the pointed-nosed Jew. They would also beat me and pelt me with stones. No classmate ever rallied to help me. Grown-ups would hurry by, seemingly not realizing what was going on. A number of times, I took refuge in our furniture store, where my uncle Michel was the manager. I would scuttle inside and pour out to him what was happening, and he would then take me home. My father eventually had one of our office staff escort me to and from school every day. Sometimes, my brother and I were even stoned by other kids on our outings. We learned to stroll in groups. Then, one day, we threw stones back at our attackers, returning their blows and scaring them off. These incidents all occurred in 1928 when I was in grade one. They stopped after that, probably because we fought back. Throughout my early school years, I was aware of social unrest and business setbacks around me. There were business failures, accompanied by increasing unemployment in 1928. Because my father was advancing merchandise on credit to scores of Jewish peddlers from Poland, he lost ruinous sums of money. The peddlers used to throng our stores every morning, replenishing their stock of goods. Then, they would fan out to sell in the region. My father expected these men to pay him for the stock they took, but some of them never did. The arguments my parents had about this were formidable. My mother would say my father was gullible and trusted people too much. He would respond that he was right to trust people. In 1929, circumstances started to really deteriorate. By 1931 to 32, most of the peddlers were unable to pay anything because their customers were short of cash. It was the depth of the depression, and my father was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. My mother prevailed on him to stay out of the stores and to let her manage them. He withdrew to a mountain resort in the Black Forest while she set to work. She collected some outstanding debts and reduced the army of peddlers, paired unprofitable goods and services, and succeeded in saving the business. My father was an expansive and impressive personality. He conceived vast schemes and dreams. He had fulfilled these ideas in part, but the times were no longer right for dreamers. By contrast, my mother was a pragmatic, down-to-earth person. She never labored under illusions. She was a doer who set herself limited aims and accomplished them efficiently. Meanwhile, Baba Shoshi, after years of murmuring that she hated Germany, Germans are vulgar, she would complain, suddenly announced one day in 1932 that she was going back to Poland. Soon afterward, she kissed us goodbye. Not long after, we learned that she was ill with cancer. She had gone back to Poland to die. She had spoken of wanting to be buried in Poland. When we heard of her illness, my father went to spend some time with her. A few months later, she was dead. I was heartbroken. But life went on, and even in sad and uncertain times, our family managed to take holidays away from Suri Wattenscheidt. My parents usually took vacations separately so that one of them could stay behind to run the stores. Their choice of holiday spots differed. My father preferred to slow down and rest in a quiet environment while my mother loved the whirl of elegant spas. 
I often tagged along with my mother to German resorts, such as her favorites, Bad Ames, or Bad Kreuznach, Bad Neuenach, Bad Süden, or Baden-Baden. She tolerated this because I was obedient and well-behaved. The typical serious eldest son. Eddie, on the other hand, was inclined to tear around wildly, breaking glasses and creating havoc. And Benno was simply too small to be taken along. I loved the setting of the spas. The buildings were usually white or pastel-colored. The parks were green and fresh, with flowered promenades and clear rivers. It was a blissful change from our coal-black region, and I have always remembered these places with fondness. In 1932, I had also completed the four years of German primary school and began gymnasium, which was then the typical secondary school for boys. The gymnasium building was closer to our home than the Freie Schule had been. I was friendly with many of my non-Jewish classmates. We played soccer together and frequently visited each other's homes. Robert Schule, the pharmacist's son, was a few years older than I was. I saw him at school every day, and sometimes we walked there or back together. Most of my Jewish education was acquired at home from private teachers. As far back as I remember, my brothers and I were taught both Hebrew and Talmud, the oral law and commentaries on the Torah. Teachers were engaged at considerable expense to instruct us for a few hours, two afternoons a week. Since our own Jewish community was so small, they had to come to our house from Essen, a train journey that took an hour each way. My father also decided that year that my brothers and I should learn English, so we started taking regular private lessons. I don't know what possessed him, since it was not a common view then that English would be a major language of the future. Looking back, I suppose he knew his sons would leave Germany one day. English was, after all, not only the language of the United States, where so many emigrants went, but it was also still the language spoken in Palestine under the British mandate. Whatever his reasons were, he did a great service for me and Eddie by forcing us to learn English from a young age. My knowledge of English would serve me well long before I got to Canada. We were exposed to a barrage of languages, which we didn't appreciate at the time. At home, we spoke Yiddish and German. At school, while I was starting English at home, I started learning Latin from the first year of gymnasium. In third year, I also had French. And in fourth year, English. By that time, my English was relatively well advanced, which was lucky for me because the method of teaching was to plunge us into the classics, such as works by Sir Walter Scott, who haunts me to this day, and then use translation and grammatical explanations to get us through a sea of foreign words. I suspect I was one of the few who could follow the lessons. And then, of course, there were those eternal Hebrew and Talmud lessons. There were other lessons, besides. For a number of years, I studied violin. I played well, but wasn't keen on practicing. Eddie drew very well and took lessons in sketching from an established artist. My father spent a fortune on our education. There was no limit to it. He had infinite respect for learning, and he knew it was something we could carry with us wherever we might go. <laughs>